Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. We have all seen the headlines. Large swaths of the American population experienced economic hardship through the course of this pandemic. And a recent Kaiser Family Foundation study found that Black and Hispanic adults were especially hit hard, according to nearly all statistical measures. In healthcare, those hardships are otherwise known as social determinants, and they directly and negatively affect a population's health. So if you're a health plan that provides healthcare for 2.4 million members in a vulnerable and low-income community, how do you manage these social determinants of health that significantly complicate the delivery of care during the pandemic? Today, we're honored to have John Backus, CEO of LA Care Health Plan, to help us answer that question. LA Care Health Plan is the largest publicly operated health plan serving over 2.4 million members in Los Angeles County through a variety of programs, including Medicaid, the California Exchange, and a home care workers' health care plan. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments. Z-E-L-I-S, Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. I also serve as the Communication Committee Chair for WEDI. That's W-E-D-I. WEDI is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. And as I've said, we've got John Backus, CEO of LA Care Health Plan and a healthcare leader for over four decades. In 2020, John was named Insurance Executive of the Year by the Los Angeles Business Journal. Before becoming CEO of LA Care, John served as president of AmeriHealth Caritas out of Philadelphia, where he oversaw the Medicare Advantage Unit. He was also CEO of Senior Whole Health in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a voluntary health plan for low-income seniors. Welcome, John, and we're very happy to have you on our show today. I'm happy to be here. Very good. Um, so listen, uh, you look at your resume, and it looked like uh, at first you were looking into architecture, and, and actually you look like you got drawn in uh, because you were drawing logos for uh, insurance companies. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about your origin story and how you became a, a healthcare leader. Yeah, well, I, you know, I wasn't a kid going, gee, I can't wait to grow up and run a health plan. <laughs> uh, I wanted to be an architect. And uh, three years in, I realized that the engineering part of that was going to be the uh, death of me. So I switched to and got a fine arts degree from Southern Illinois University uh, in a department, the design department, which was run by Buckminster Fuller. And if you know anything about Bucky, uh, his greatest attribute was he was a problem solver. And so I, I benefited from that experience. And then fast forward a few years and I'm in a place where I have a day job, but I have a part-time job as a graphic designer. And I uh, won the competition to design a logo for a health maintenance organization, HMO. And... Um, they, they bought mine. They paid me the lordly sum of 150 bucks, And then they came back and said, well, we need a brochure. We need letterhead. We need this. We need that. So I kept doing all that. <clears throat> Meanwhile, my day job uh, was evaporating. So I went to them. I said, look, I can't do this anymore. I got to go look for a full-time job. And they said, no, wait, come work for us. 
And I said, what in God's name would I do? And they said, you can do sales. So I joined them as a sales rep. And then 12 years later, I was the CEO. <laughs> that's that's really <laughs> something. <laughs> something must have happened to that 12 years. But <laughs> we well, might I had have to leave that for another I had, time. I had a wonderful mentor who uh, really, really helped me. Oh, very good. And and it sounds like one of your inspirations or one of your one of your idea people was Buckminster Fuller, who, if I'm not mistaken, he had a very holistic view of approaching problems. Is that is that a is that appropriate way? Absolutely. He had a a huge volume about the world catalog. um, And uh, he does, you know, he designed many things. I mean, we think of him for the geodesic dome, but he had a lot of other great ideas. And uh, and I think what he brought to that little school in Southern Illinois with the design department was really the ability to figure out how to solve problems. And part of the curriculum included hands-on stuff in a photo lab, in a wood shop, and a metal shop, where you really learned about the materials of the world around you. Um, and little did I know at the time, those things really do help as you go along. And, and it, it does seem to reflect your trajectory because you were literally in the trenches with the sales. So you come to know the products quite a bit and then you probably progressed through. You didn't come from a business school right from the top. So it sounds like you started, you know, in the workshop, so to speak. And, and, and moved well, out. I always said that, you know, um, I thought sales was a great route to come up to the executive suite, if you will, because if you were really going to be good at sales, you had to know everything about the product. And along the way, you either they trained you, and if they didn't train you, you you know were nosy and asked a lot of questions. So, uh, I, for me, it was a nice uh, progression. Very good. And and speaking of problem solving, uh, it sounds like that was exactly uh, your main job during the pandemic uh, when we're talking about the social determinants of health. So, 2.4 million members, uh, a a vulnerable community. Um, what were the problems uh, that arose during the pandemic? And then and then what were some of the solutions? Well, I suppose the first uh, problem that arose during the pandemic that um, was of great concern was getting people tested. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we we did, uh, you know, we used the data we had, kind of categorized our members into highly vulnerable based on a whole bunch of cohorts that we had access to. And we started calling them and telling them, hey, get tested, here's where you go, that sort of thing. Uh, that then evolved into what I would call uh, more of a reality check. Um, you know, as the pandemic started, the recession would descended on us with a bang. And um, people were saying, oh my God, all these unemployed people, your enrollment's gonna skyrocket. Well, in fact, our enrollment at the beginning of the pandemic didn't skyrocket. But what people didn't understand is among our Medicaid population, a third of those people had jobs. Hmm. Um, Probably about a quarter of them had full-time work and the rest had part-time work. Well, those were the first people to get laid off because they were in jobs that didn't provide health insurance. So they were the housekeepers in, in the hotels. They were the kitchen staff. They were the bartenders. They were the waiters. They were the valets. And of course, when everything shut down, they're out. They had the health insurance, but they didn't have income. And what we saw was a 200% increase in applications for food aid. 
So that led us uh, to enter into the food business. So we have a series of eight community resource centers spread across Los Angeles County that um, are really health education centers, storefronts and strip malls. We do health education classes there. And what we started to do is we teamed up with community agencies that do know how to get their hands on food. And we put on probably 30 food pantries um, before the end of the year. Uh, they were open to the public, not just our members. But uh, we'd give four, like 400 boxes of food. And when the last box was gone, there was still a line a mile long. So to, to us, that emphasized that what the pandemic was doing was really illustrating in a, in, in a life and death matter that inequality in our society is the root of not only social unrest, but also health status. So we've continued the food pantries. They're still going on. They'll probably go on to the end of this year. We then did a series of back uh, flu clinics at those resource centers, trying to get the word out to get the flu vaccine so that people would not be competing for precious health resources if we had a bad flu season. And now, starting tomorrow, we're conducting 16 vaccine clinics. We were lucky enough to get uh, 16,000 doses of J&J. We're running uh, 16 clinics, doing 1,000 doses a day. We're calling our members of our high risk to see if they've gotten a vaccine or not. And if they don't, we slot them in. And as of uh, this morning, we had filled 13,300 appointments already. Uh, and the first one starts tomorrow. Wow. So, you know, that's making the health plan more than a plastic card in a wallet. Let's put it that way. And and what's the what's the uh, what's what's the motivation there? I mean, absolutely more than a health plan. And and I know at the beginning of the pandemic that um, there was some call for for payers to do certain things voluntarily. But you all you certainly went above and beyond uh, with the the food kitchens and and being very ambitious. So, so what, what, what's your thinking there as, a, as the CEO of a, of a plan? Well, you, you noted my uh, part of my career path. And I think where I really uh, got um, religion on this was when I was running Senior Whole Health. That was a program for um, dual eligible, age dual eligibles. So these are people who, as one of my nurses so graphically put it, these aren't old people that got poor. These are poor people that got old. And we saw what you could do with interventions that were outside of the health benefits we're responsible for by putting an air conditioner in an asthmatic's home, mm -hmm. by going grocery shopping for somebody who was trapped in a third floor walk up and couldn't get out. Uh, we saw the value of those kinds of things and really embraced it. And so that has stuck with me ever since. And certainly LA Care as a public entity already embraced that. So when I got here, it was fertile ground for us to probably make a broader uh, statement about that than um, I had ever done before. Mm. Very good. Um, you know, we're in the midst of uh, uh, interoperability rules. There's some rules upcoming uh, this year and next year for, for providers to, to stop information blocking. We're coming off of uh, 10 years now about a meaningful use. And there's this idea of freeing the data, getting the clinical data moving. But it feels like the pandemic came just just <laughs> just a few years too early for us to to really use the full strength of clinical data 
as a as a tool against it. Can you talk a little bit about that? What 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 data was available, and and what in what sense we were in a very good place, and in what sense do we hope to be in a better place? Uh, well, of course, the thing that was missing yeah. was a uh, universal source of truth. So what we did starting as soon as the pandemic began, we began trying to um, report exactly how many of our members were infected, hospitalized, or have died as a result of COVID. So our sources were multiple. One that I want to give a plug to is that we do have a health information exchange here in Los Angeles County called LANES, the Los Angeles Enhanced Network Services. And LA Care has been a member from the founding and kind of helped to get off the ground. We have 25 hospitals, a whole boatload of FQHCs in it, and uh, we're in it as a health plan and another health plan. That became a source of some of the data. So we could tap that and find out if somebody, what their status was. We also relied, of course, on our own data, claims data coming in, prior authorizations coming in. We pulled from uh, various resources that the county had, and we were able to put together a daily census. That census continues, but now we've added vaccinations, both the first shot, if you're in a two-shot um, uh, therapy uh, or one, and then if you're fully vaccinated. So we're monitoring as closely as we can, but the challenge is we have to pull from probably a half a dozen or more sources to begin to produce that. And then we always have an asterisk and say, we're sure this is incomplete, but um, it has been a way for us to track things. Now, one of the things we were able to track on that to illustrate the point you made earlier, you know, as uh, we have in our Medicaid population, 44% of them are Latino and about 9% are African-Americans. And then we have probably 14 or 15% of Asian descent. We have studied from the get-go the horrible impact this pandemic has had on those populations compared to Caucasian populations. And it's devastating. The Latinos were infected, hospitalized, and dying at three times the rate of the Caucasian population. And going back to my earlier comment that many people on Medicaid work, which is a myth the public needs to get over, um, they were the first ones impacted by the pandemic. They did not have the luxury of working from home and they had to go out to earn a living if they were able to find some place to go. And naturally they were exposed at the community level, brought it home and if they lived in a very dense household or multi-generational household, that was another area for spread. So, so vulnerable, really, in many different aspects of the term, not just vulnerable yes. economically, but vulnerable to the infection and in more dangerous situations. Yeah. Right. So we, you know, we lost 20, over 23,000 people in Los Angeles County died from COVID and about 1.3 million were infected. So, um, you know, this in its own little microcosm here, we, we mirrored the rest of the world or the country and, uh, but it disproportionately fell on black and brown people. Right, right. Um, sobering statistics. John, uh, when we come back, we're going to continue our talk with John Backus, CEO of LA Care Health Plan. Uh, for now, let's take a quick break and hear from our producer, Michael McNutt. Be sure to mark your calendars for these upcoming weedy events. 
on April 21st, leveraging interoperability to advance value-based care. This is free to the industry, sponsored by Health. On April 28th, ready, set, comply. Meeting the information blocking challenge. Free to the industry and sponsored by MCG. And in May, be sure to register for Weedy 2021, our annual spring conference. Pre-conference on May 14th and 17th, and the main conference, May 18th, 19th, and 20th. For more information and to register, please visit Weedy.org. We're back, and we're talking with John Backus, CEO of LA Care Health Plan, on another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. So, John, we 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 left uh, before the break on uh, some sobering statistics about the impact on vulnerable communities, especially uh, the numbers of deaths and the numbers of hospitalized, uh, disproportionately hitting uh, minority populations. And this is a terrible question, maybe to ask on a podcast, but uh, any ideas on on how to solution that? problem that that issue well um yeah if we could go back matthew to the beginning where you talked about social determinants um some of us in the field hate that term by the way it sounds so um clinical uh, and as i like to say i think that they got social determinants down at the Be- beverly hills country club as well <laughs> but what right. we really mean as i look at social determinants these are barriers for people to get the right care in the right place at the right time and those barriers could be around education language poverty you name it all are contributors so what what we had been thinking about and inching towards uh, prior to COVID was the idea that, particularly for the Medicaid population, which is the most likely to have severe social determinants or severe barriers, is how to holistically incorporate the social services that they're entitled to, but do it in a way that's synergistic. So we're doing it with a purpose to improve that person's quality of health and their health status. So if I have a member who has a food insecurity issue or isn't eating properly, that person is probably entitled to uh, food stamps or what they call CalFresh in California. The best we can do is give her a phone number or a warm transfer, but that person then has to go through the administrative gymnastics of applying and giving that agency all the same information we already have. And if they wanted, you know, a, a heating assistance, which, you know, nobody has that in California, but, you know, a program like that, or they needed assistance on housing, they've got to go through each one of these administrative silos to get it. Since we now, as uh, managed care plans, are screening everybody for these determinants, we now know what the recipe is that we need. So why can't we be a delivery point for those services? We're not gonna deliver them, but why can't we connect them so that the, the beneficiary doesn't have to go through each one of these administrative silos? It would seem to me it would save a ton of money in terms of the administrative expenses. I mean, look what happens. If you're in Medicaid, you have to be redetermined every year. If you're in on CalFresh, you've got to be redetermined every six months. So the amount of money we're spending on throwing paper around, which may be done electronically now, is horrendous. 
So our idea is to try to integrate social services into the care plans for our most vulnerable people. Now, the other thing, Matthew, if you think about it, if you look at the other first world countries, we spend the most money on health care. Compared to the other first world countries, we spend less on social services, at least at the government level. If you add the combined spending of healthcare and social services, and then you match us up with the other first world countries, we're still a little bit higher, but they're not that far apart. So I was using this example the other day, trying to explain this to somebody, and I said, look, let's say you have a, sh a highway that has a sharp curve around a cliff, and cars keep flying off the cliff. Well, we dutifully send ambulances to the bottom of the cliff and pick them up and haul them away. The decision is, do we invest our resources to put a guardrail on the curve at the top of the cliff, or do we send more ambulances to the bottom? I think in the U.S. we've been sending plenty of ambulances to the bottom, but we haven't invested enough guardrails at the top. And that's really what we like to do, is take the social services that people are entitled to and make sure they're delivered in a way that will address their specific um, health status issues and concerns. Right. It's very interesting because in this program, you know, we have a, a lot of IT people on healthcare leaders, and we often talk about administrative simplification, right? Uh, but it's always from the point of view of the health plan or for the provider, uh, right? But so 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 often we forget about the patient and get administrative simplification for the patient, and that's exactly what you're talking about, and and uh, across a holistic, not just you know healthcare, but thinking about healthcare as part of the whole uh, of the safety net. Uh, yeah. that this person is good. To, uh, very good. So, um, and speaking of that, um, so the administration, Biden administration, rolled out at the end of March uh, their American Jobs Act, I believe it was called, and in it, it includes four hundred billion dollars to support in-home care. Uh, it sounds like most of that, those funds, will go towards targeting or lifting the wages of uh, home service workers. Uh, I know you've got a plan, and you you this is one of your uh, focuses in Los Angeles. Can you talk a little bit what you've done uh, in terms of in-home care, and sure. maybe we can think about it as a model uh, if this money actually comes through, right? Well, <clears throat> the state of California created an in-home support services program, uh, which they set up as kind of a demonstration in eight counties, of which Los Angeles was one of them. Uh, and this was a plan that was worked out with the Service Employees International Union. So from the get-go, the people who were providing the in-home support services, the provider, uh, had a guaranteed wage of about 11, $11.50 to $12 an hour. They also got health insurance. And uh, we then became the plan in Los Angeles for those SEIU in-home support service workers. Now, a key to the program, which all the advocates love, is that the beneficiary got to pick who the in-home support service worker was. Somebody familiar, blah, blah, blah. So 90% of the time, it's a family member. Uh, and uh, the problem is those family members have had absolutely no training. So it occurred to us that the best thing we could do would be invest in training those in-home support service workers. So we entered into an agreement with a um, SEIU spinoff called the California Long-Term Education Center. And in that, uh, we started training the IHSS workers. And it was a customized 10-week program focusing on what managed care is, 
what are the signs that they should look for in their client that being uh, pick up the phone and call somebody, uh, and also tips on how to maintain their own mental health and physical health as an in-home support service worker, because they're working in isolation. They have nobody but the client. So we have now trained 3,500 of these people. It's a 10-week program. It's about uh, 30 hours. Uh, they get a certificate. And what we've found is, because uh, we've been studying the utilization of services by the clients pre and post training of the provider, and we're seeing a material material drop in emergency room utilization and hospital readmissions after the client's in-home support service worker has been trained. Now, the other thing that we did not expect from this is that the um, providers are ecstatic. At the end of it, they want to have a graduation. They're educated in cohorts of about 50 in their language of choice. And I have now been to six of these graduations myself. And I'm telling you, they play pomp and circumstance. Some of them go out and rent caps and gowns. <laughs> and they bring the whole fam family to watch it. There's grandmas and wheelchairs and crying babies and balloons and flowers. It is such a sense of affirmation for them. And we didn't count on that. <clears throat> I had one of the graduates come to our Board of Governors meeting to explain the program to my board. And I didn't coach this guy. And he got up and said, well, this program has been very helpful for me. He said, I'm my mother's caregiver, and this program has taught me the difference between my role as a son and my role as a caregiver, and I'm now better at both. So after that, the board said, how much more money do you want? <laughs> wow. So, but the point of that is we have an army of people out there who are caregivers. They're unnamed, untitled, uncompensated who are, cannot afford private placement in nursing homes, perhaps they don't qualify for Medicaid, and somebody's taking care of them. If we invested a modicum of resources in those people, and I'll tell you this program costs a little over $2,000 per uh, provider to run the training program, I think the payoff for society will be tremendous. And I know that we saved lives by training these 3,500 people because some of their clients would have otherwise been in institutions that would not have survived this pandemic. Yeah, that's a that's a terrific story. Uh, great, great, great hope for in-home care. Very right. good. But so, the point is you don't need to have a degree. You can take people who are interested and you can give them skills they didn't have, which will make a difference. And I think it's fascinating, too, when you think about access to health care. We've had so many discussions on this program about telehealth and what does that do to the, the role of the health care provider. And it's very interesting when you get into the realm of the health care provider is a relative, right, is your son, your daughter is the health care provider. Uh, it's fascinating to think how our, our, how we think about health care providers is expanding. That definition is expanding and we can work to expand it. Well, I think the biggest cohort of people that we don't recognize in our society are the oldest daughters. Yeah. They get 95% of the time, they're the ones holding the bag. I think that's exactly right. I think of my big sister, that's all her. So, that's right, exactly. Yeah. So, I have four daughters, so I know that I'll be well taken care of when I have a chair unassisted or anything. 
<laughs> Terrific. Got to put them through that training, right? <laughs> Before it gets too late. Right. <laughs> so uh, uh, thank you, John. Back is uh, uh, closing thoughts. Uh, where do you hope, uh, where do you see uh, healthcare arriving at? Or what are, you, what are your aspirations for healthcare in this country? Where, where, where would you like to see it end up? Well, I'd certainly like to see it end up with universal access. So the fact that the current administration is intent on expanding the Affordable Care Act and giving it back some of the details that were uh, gutted out of it in the last four years is, is really welcome news. Um, the second thing that uh, I hope will happen as a result of the pandemic is we will realize that social determinants or the inequities of society are life and death issues life and death issues. And we began to address them in a more holistic fashion. And then within healthcare itself, um, you know, when I got in, my first job was in 1976 as a sales guy. And um, part of the reason the HMO was being ballyhooed is it was going to save money because healthcare was too expensive. Well, we're still too expensive. And I think one of the problems that's happened over those 40 plus years is that we have uh, granulated the services to such a level that we've made it more difficult to piece something together. Mm -hmm. And uh, my private equity funds will find offense of this, but there's too much private equity money out there going into healthcare, inventing services and applications and stuff that may make money for the investors, but are not really helping reduce the overall cost of healthcare along the line. And if we don't recognize that and do something about it, it's just going to get worse. So universal access, uh, getting uh, some control of costs, and then the issues that I mentioned about integrating social services with healthcare. So we allocate our resources and target them in a more synergistic way than we have done historically. It does sound like Buckminster Fuller is, is coming out there, right? If <laughs> fragmentation will only get us worse off and will destroy us, we need to holistically circle the wagons. Right? Well, he's either, either that or he's spinning in his grave going, oh, my God. What have, <laughs> what have they done? What have they done? Uh, before we leave, I do want to uh, touch on something that you, you mentioned, uh, social determinants of health. You don't like that terminology. Uh, on this program, let's try and uh, use terminology you would like. What would you suggest uh, a way of uh, describing Barriers that? to getting the right care in the right place at the right time. Perfect. All right. We, we will try and uh, use that terminology going forward. Any any uh, resources you want to point uh, listeners to in terms of what we've talked about today? Well, um, this may seem a little off base, but I'm reading a wonderful book called The New Age of Empire by a British black historian, in Hindi Andrews, and he's talking about, and I think this is pertinent given what we went through in the last year uh, in the reaction to the George Floyd murder and recognition of institutional racism, because it, it, he really talks about how our thinking had really predetermines what's going to happen, and it's the system is set up to favor a white population more than a black and a brown population. And I would encourage, and then you, once you read it, you can then cascade the learning into any segment of society, including healthcare. And I think that's kind of the 
more holistic view we as a nation need to take about how we're going to address these issues. And healthcare inequity is, of course, one of the most obvious ones because of the pandemic. Very good. So the new age of empire that's on our reading list. Uh, John Backus, CEO of LA Care Health Plan. Very happy to have you on our show. Very interesting uh, conversation. Uh, great model out there in LA Care. So appreciate your time today, sir. It was my pleasure, Matthew, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Very good. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.